Welcome to Carpenter's Way. Uh, if you're in the room, if you want to stand and worship with us, you're more than welcome. You do not have to. But if you'd like to stand and worship, please do. Um, if you're checking us out online, uh, same thing. You can stand up there in your living room or on the beach or wherever you're at this July 4th. But yeah, join in with us this morning. shelter in you my God and there you give me rest you are my refuge and my safe place my strength is in your name and though I stumble you won't let me fall you hold me in your
grace that frees us. Thank you for your truth. And thank you for our love that never ends. Thank you for your proof. Oh, you are our love. You are our life. You are the giver, breather of life. And you are our hope. You are our peace. You are the one who calls us redeemed. Oh, you are our love. Oh, strong here in your hands our faith complete here in your hands our hope is strong here in your hands and our faith complete oh you are our love you are our light you are the giver breather of life and you are our hope, you are our peace, you are the one who calls us redeemed. Oh, you are our love, you are our life, you are the giver, breather of life, and you are our hope, you are our peace, you are the God showed us how much He loved us by sending His one and only Son into the world so that we might have eternal life through Him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Don't know why you love me, but you do. Why you forgive me for the things that I do. Foolish mistakes I make when I take my eyes off of you. I don't know why you love me, but you do I don't know why you 
carry all my shame Why you would freely come and die in my place Why you would walk my path or why you would even look my way Don't know why you carry all my shame You love me before I knew you You forgive me when I cry to you And so I thank you I lay my life before
Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul. Worship His holy name. Sing like never before, oh my soul. Worship Your holy The sun comes up, it's a new day dawning. It's time to sing your song again. Whatever may pass and whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the evening comes. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship His holy name, sing like never before, oh my soul, worship Your holy Worship your holy name. 
Would you uh, take a moment? We've got, uh, we've got a lot of people on vacation today, but we've got a lot of visitors. So would you stand up, look around you for somebody you don't recognize, shake their hand. If you've been here more than a, three weeks, then it's your job to reach out because you're a regular. So. Okay, all right, there's a difference between greeting someone and having lunch. So just stop being so friendly, you went over the top, and now you're all, <laughs> somebody said no. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I lost control a, lot time, a long time ago. Well, good morning again, and we are so glad that you're here. Uh, there isn't GPS this morning for our children, so they're going to be in here. You know, there's probably... I don't know, probably three or four times a year, maybe one or two more, that we don't have GPS. And you know, one of the nice things about GPS is you can concentrate on what we're, you know, what we're learning and studying in the Scripture time. But you know, it's just as equally important that we model for our kids worshiping together. Because we want them to grow up and think this is important. You know, we, we, uh, Alicia and her team does a really good job ministering to kids in whatever age category and cognitive place that they're at and teaching the Scriptures but we also want them to know that they're eventually going to grow up and be with us in here. So that's why we keep them in here during worship. And some Sundays, uh, depending on what's going on, our children are at, our, our young children are at camp right now, and they're coming back this afternoon. Is that accurate? 
So uh, thank you for praying. Pray for their safe trip home, and uh, we will continue to disciple our kids, and our children's staff will uh, commence on their nervous breakdowns. So uh, they have been working so faithfully and hard, and we're appreciative of that. What a good morning for us to be looking at the text we are. Just to give you some context where we are in our study together, for those of you who are visiting, at Carpenter's Way, we pretty much do verse-by-verse study, 98.9% uh, of the time. We go through a text of Scripture. We have a, a book uh, that we look at, book of the Bible. For those of you who may not know the Scriptures, let me explain that the Bible is not one book. It's actually a volume. It's a library of books that's made up of 66 books written over a period of 1,400 years by at least 44 different authors, and they don't conflict. They all tell the story of Jesus Christ and our relationship as His favorite creation to Him. starts with Genesis, how it begins, and ends in Revelation, how He's going to repair it and fix it and, and us joining Him. So in that, we try to pick a, a different book, and we have been going through First and Second Peter. Uh, we're actually going to finish Second Peter next week. And then we're going to take a one-week break because I want to talk about for a Sunday, how is it? Because I talk a lot about the fact that the body of Christ is not a political action committee, no matter what some people think, but we are the body of Christ, and we are commanded by Jesus above all else to seek first the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of our forefathers or our country, but the kingdom of God. But there is a question that I would like to spend a, a, a two weeks, not next Sunday, but the following Sunday on, and it's going to answer the question, what, what is my role then as a seeker of the kingdom of God in a democracy, in a country? What's my role then? Do I just abandon it because politics, uh, well, whatever. We're going to talk about that in two weeks, and we will, yes, we will be going from Scripture. Uh, we'll be, uh, well, I don't want to tell you where because you'll study and miss the Sunday. So, uh, but uh, that'll be in two weeks. So next week, we're going to wrap up Second Peter. Then we're going to take a Sunday where I'm going to share with you my thoughts on how we can be actively involved in succeeding America. Uh, that's the country God has placed us in. That will be a fun morning, uh, disappointing to some, but exciting to others. Uh, and then the following week, we're going to take four or five weeks, I haven't decided yet, on the Lord's Prayer. And uh, there are four different concepts in the Lord's Prayer that he talks about. And I think we pretty much all know the Lord's Prayer, even if you don't go to church. But I'm not sure that we've ever slowed down long enough, most of us, to actually understand what it's saying. Why did he teach us to pray that way? And that will take us into the fall. And in the fall, we're going to start in Romans chapter 1. Uh, I did this, my first series at Carpenter's Way was a study in the book of Romans, uh, or the letter of Romans by Paul to Gentile Christians. And so we are going to go through that again, verse by verse, uh, with what God has been teaching us. So that will start sometime this fall. So that gives you an idea of what we'll be doing for the next 17 years. So, uh, but it's going to be a great time together. If you are uh, not part of a church and you're looking to study God's Word, whether you are a child of God or not, we invite you to participate with us. You're going to see this morning that while uh, some of the concepts of Christendom, of evangelical Christianity, historical Christianity may be unpopular in culture, they're not being made up by people. We believe that the Bible is God's Word and unapologetically teaches truth. And this morning's, this morning's section I have been so excited to preach. I mean, I just, I was so encouraged this week. Uh, believers, and so, so one more thing. If you are visiting with us today and you are a child of God, this is for you. If you are visiting today, but you are not a child of God, or if you come here regularly and you're not a child of God, don't be offended. This is just what God taught us and we believe. 
So as we go through this, please understand that this is predominantly written for children of God, although it applies to you as somebody who's seeking uh, truth, and we're encouraging you in this, but this is from Peter, who got this from the Lord, and it should be encouraging to believers. And the question that it's going to answer, believers, is, and, and let's be honest, we've all asked it, is the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Why does God seem so patient with all this? What is going on? Why doesn't he just show himself and do something dramatic? He would stop all the mess that we're in. And that is going to be what we answer this morning from this text. So um, I want to pray because um, I want the Holy Spirit to teach us, not Pastor Mark. I want our, our hearts to be open to what God says. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I ask you now to speak to us, uh, to... to um, whether we know you or not today personally, it is my prayer that your Holy Spirit opens the, uh, our ears and helps us to understand. And for those, Father, who are watching online or in this room that may not know you as their, uh, as their adoptive father, paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, I pray that today they would understand your invitation, your offer. For those of us who know you, Father, we, are, uh, we can get very frustrated we can get discouraged. We can get angry. Uh, but Lord, that's because we don't either A, understand what you're doing, or B, we just don't like what you're doing. So I pray, Father, that while we're still human and in the flesh and struggle with those thoughts, that you would realign us to your plan. Uh, we love you. We're thankful that we live in this amazing country, that we're not afraid this morning of the government coming in and shutting us down or arresting us. Thank you for that. We have brothers and sisters in Iran and China and North Korea this last week was a bad week for our family. Actually, it was a good week because you're in charge, but, but uh, they are nailing our brothers and sisters in Christ, killing them, arresting them. We're not afraid of that. And so for all the weirdness that we're experiencing and frustration that we as a people are feeling right now, Lord Jesus, thank you for this great country. We love you. Uh, now speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 2 Peter 3, 1-3 says this, This is my second to letter to you, dear friends, and in both of them I have tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. So let's pause for a second. Every letter ever written, every one, whether it's in the Scriptures by the apostles or the one you wrote to your girlfriend who may now be your wife or the ones you still write to somebody, a family member, a friend, Every letter ever written has a purpose, whether it's stated or not. The purpose may be nothing more but to remind somebody you're there or to keep in touch with somebody or to update them on what's going on in your life, but there's never been a, a letter written that has no purpose. And um, my goal, my real goal for our time together in the Word is that I'm not sure we're going to be able to do church in 20 years the way we do it right now. Maybe we will. That would be wonderful. But if that day changes, I want you to be able to sit with your family in your homes and study God's Word. And so it's really important that each time we get together that I not only model how to handle God's Word, but I want you to understand some, some what they're called hermeneutic principles, Bible study principles. There's not a book in the Bible that if you spend enough time in it doesn't declare why it was written. Not one book. Everyone explains why it was written. Uh, Genesis, for instance, says in the beginning. Well, the word Genesis in Hebrew means beginning. Well, so what's the purpose of Genesis? To tell us how it started. So the story in Genesis isn't of Noah's ark. It isn't even of Adam and Eve's sin. It's the story of God who created everything and put us in this perfect environment and we went our own way. 
That's what the story is about. So from there, it starts taking us through. We can, the Exodus. What's the story? Uh, what's the book of Exodus about? That was right. Boy, this is a remedial Bible study group. You know? Leviticus? I think somebody said, I don't know. Uh, Leviticus is the, is the religious law. And how do I know that? Because Leviticus comes from Levites, who are the religious leaders of their day. Deuteronomy is the law, more of the law. Anyway, the whole book, if you, and, and this is one of the reasons why I encourage you, and, and I try to do it, and you're going to be wondering if I'm going to do it in Romans because it's a long book. But for 30 days before I actually teach a book, I just read it. I don't go to commentaries. I just read it every day for a month. Why? Because by the time I'm done, I know the author. I can feel his emotion. And I'm kind of, I, it, I figure out why he's writing it. I learn something new every day. And so by the time we get together into a book like 2 Peter, I pretty much know what the book is saying, the point of the book, why it's getting there, what the author's trying to say. So you'll notice that every week when I teach, I somehow am pointing or at least hinting to it because that's where that letter's heading. Does that make sense? So every letter has a purpose. One you've written, the Bible has them, books have a purpose. Uh, and so as a student of God's Word, it's really important. If you want to understand what it's saying and why it's saying it, it's really important for you to understand why it's written. And actually, Peter has done a great job in 2 Peter chapter 3 explaining why he wrote these two letters. He says, and I'll start it again, this is my second letter to you, dear friends, so we know the relationship. I love you. You're my people. And in both of them, I have tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and also refresh your memory. I want you to remember, oh, he wants us to remember something. What is it he wants us to remember? What the holy prophets said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through the apostles. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come mocking the truth and following their own desires. So let's pause for a second and, and catch up. Uh, in these three verses, Peter actually clarifies his two main goals in writing these letters we've been studying. The context of Peter's letter is that he loves these folks. This is his flock. And for 10, 20 years after Jesus' ascension, he's been shepherding them. When they had questions, they would ask Peter or one of the other apostles. Well, Peter has become aware, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, if you put that on the screen, our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me that I must soon leave this earthly life so I will work hard to make sure you always remember these things after I'm gone. So Peter has become well aware that he's about to leave the earth. He can no longer shepherd his flock, much like maybe if you had a relationship with a grandparent or parent who knew they were dying, and, and they're, not, they're, they're thinking of you in their death. They'll often sit with you and explain some thoughts on life. What are some things they want to leave with you? And this is what he's doing in these two letters. Thoughts he wants to leave with them because he knows he won't be with them much longer. And so he wants them to remember some things. The first of all, though, there are two things, as I mentioned, that he tells us in the first three verses of chapter 2 or chapter 3 of 2 Peter. The first thing he wants to do is stimulate their, their thinking, to get them to think for themselves. You guys know the old saying, because it's a southern saying, if you give a person a fish, they eat for a day. But if you teach them how to fish, they'll eat for a lifetime. As a non-fisherman or a guy who's not good at it, that's not totally true. But the concept is right. The, the truth is that for too long, or it's too easy to just tell you, to tell the flock, to tell these people what's true. 
And whenever they started going left or right, they could write to Peter or Paul and say, hey, what do you think of this? Those days are over. Peter's about to die. And so what he's trying to do in these letters is, is, is get them to stimulate their thinking, he says. He, could, he wants them to reflect. He wants them to wrestle. He wants them um, to be slow to speak and quick to listen before, uh, before they talk or before they make de- decisions. And that's complicated. He wrote this to get these fo- folks to, uh, to seriously contemplate life in the world And as a follower of Jesus, their place in it, especially as they have come to accept the fact that they're exiles in the world. We all know, whether you're part of this or not, it is super easy, especially with social media today, to react to a post you don't like and put it out there without thinking, and then an hour later, you wish you wouldn't have posted that. Uh, Very little, I don't want to say never, I've said never, very little good is done by arguing theology or anything on the internet, you just get the same people who like what you're saying to like you, and you get the same people to hate on you. The truth is the abortion issue will not be solved online. But what we need to understand is God wants to slow our thinking down. Scripture, the mandate is slow to speak, quick to hear. And that's what he's doing here. I understand. I, one of the jokes uh, that I still laugh at coming to Carpenter's Way 17 years ago, and I, I've never been a Southern Baptist before I came here or affiliated with a Southern Baptist church. I grew up independent, angry, fundamental. And then uh, when we went to Moody, we went to an evangelical free church, which you probably don't know much about, but it's much like Carpenter's Way. And then we've been a part of a conservative Baptist association church. Then I pastored. The only other church I've pastored is an evangelical free church for 10 years prior to coming here. This is my first interaction with the Southern Baptist Church. And so there was a lot I had to learn, and I still haven't learned it. And one of the ways I know that is because periodically, periodically, every Sunday for the first year, Jeff would come into my office, he'd poke his head in my office and go, yet another thing that has never been said in a Southern Baptist church before. (laughs) So... So we still laugh about that. The elders, we were talking about it on Wednesday night at our elders meeting. The the truth is, you guys, that the reason that I sometimes, um, Bible study leaders every every Thursday get an outline of my message, and one of the things that Stephen Lewis used to say as he's one of our Bible study leaders is he would laugh and say, I really appreciate those outlines because you don't preach half of them, and that gives me something to talk about. Uh, Was that you that said that, Stephen? Yes, thank you. All right, so because sometimes my wife tells me I make up stories. I just wanted to make sure. But, but it, what, what's interesting, though, is that I, I'll roll out of the pocket. I'm looking at you. My goal isn't just to handle Scripture properly, but to get you to think, even if you disagree with me. I talked about this last week. My goal for you is not to agree with me. My goal is for you to agree with the Scriptures. And so if I say something that I'm off on, I don't want to be theologically off, but I will say provocative things for the purpose of getting you to wrestle with those thoughts. And you're, you're welcome to disagree. And that's one of the mistakes of the church today is we think that everybody should have one political persuasion, everybody should be agreed on every issue, and that is such a mistake because what we agree on is the gospel and the word of God. And everything else is up for grabs. And it's affected by our culture and our history and our stories. And it's okay that we don't agree on everything. In fact, I think it's healthy. And and he's trying to understand that here. He's trying to tell them that he wants them to know, to to think deeply. He wants to stimulate their thinking. So much of what he says is incredibly provocative. The second thing, though, is he wants to refresh their memory of the things that they had been taught, for they had been taught well. 
the writings of the prophets, Old Testament, we could call that. It was available to them in writing. They could have studied that. They, they could have gone to a synagogue and listened and learned. But also, they had the teaching of the, New Test, uh, of the New Testament apostles. And at this point in the story, a lot of the letters that you now study, they were available to them. They had been copied and passed around the churches. I know that there's this idea that 350 AD, all of a sudden, every, they came up with 66 books and stuck them together. That is not accurate. The truth is that the New Testament church under the apostles' authority had already begun using particular books. There were 3,000 3, uh, sacred letters that the Hebrew people used. Out of that, the, the apostles as well as the Hebrew religious leaders had decided on a few. That's what we have as our Old Testament today. In the New Testament, the apostles already had declared what was sacred scripture. So by the time it's put together by the Roman Catholic Church at 350 AD, there was pretty much 66 books that had already been decided were holy scripture or part of what we call as the canon. Now today people are like, who chose those? The church chose those, the apostles chose those, the Holy Spirit chose those, but it wasn't a bunch of people in a room, a bunch of guys going, what are we going to decide? Hey, I, I like this book over this one. That's not how it happened. And there's a lot of bad press on that today. This book can be trusted, and it was given to us by the apostles. John was the last one to live, and by then he had endorsed most of the New Testament books. So back to this, they had the teaching of the apostles and the prophets, and he wanted them first to remember to go back to that. When I'm gone, you go back to that. But he ended in verse 3 with most importantly, so I want to remind you that you can always look at the apostles and apostles' teachings, but most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. I guess we're in the last days. You know, we, we like to talk about earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars. Does, does that sound like today? I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come mocking the truth and following their own desires. So he calls them scoffers who mock. That's a description of these people. And he goes on. They, verse 4, they, the scoffers who mock the truth, will say, now listen to what they said. What happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? I mean, from before the times of our ancestors, everything has pretty much remained the same since the world was first created. If you were to debate an atheist, that's one thing they would say. Where's your God? You tell me that God exists. Where is he? That's a scoff. That's mocking. That's mocking. Just because you don't see something does not mean it doesn't exist. For instance, not one of you can see the sun. And I'm here to tell you that I was one of the last in the worship center this morning, and the sun ceased to exist at 9.35. Do you know what else I believe? I believe that wind is caused by leaves. Did you know that? Because I've never seen a tree not moving every time the wind blows. Just because you can't see something or you can see something or you don't understand it does not make it truth or a lack of truth. And you would think from the way the world is acting today, a scoffer who says, well, I, I don't see God working. I mean, the Bible has him working in these supernatural ways. So where's your God? I'll tell you what's really interesting to me as I read it this week. I thought it sounded familiar from a lot of Christians. Where are you, God? I'm struggling down here. I've got cancer or my money isn't good. It would be a really nice time for you to show up or I really don't like that president. Trump is, ah, you thought I was talking about the now guy. I was talking about Carter. The, the, tr the truth, I'm just kidding, you guys. 
The, the truth is that, that that thought is the familiar one. And he calls that mocking. Why does he call it mocking? Here it is, next verse. Because they deliberately forget that God made the heavens by the word of his command and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used that same water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They, these scoffers who mock, are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. So their mocking is, I don't see them. What if I told you that Abraham Lincoln never lived? You would go, okay, Mark's making an illustration here. You're right, but none of you have ever met him. None of you have ever, it's interesting, we were in D.C. over vacation, and I wanted to go in and, and uh, see where he was shot. I, I have a fascination with Abraham Lincoln and all things historical about it, um, and I couldn't get a ticket to go see it. And so I didn't get to go in, but I got to see the outside, which was pretty exciting, but not what I wanted. And uh, I have, uh, we have had the privilege through the years. Do you, remember the, do you remember the Freedom Train in 1776? You guys remember that? Going across the country and had all these uh, uh, old historic things in it. That's one of my earliest memories because uh, I was 10 years old. <laughs> Some of you just aged really fast. Um, but in 1776, I remember going in the train, and on that train, they had uh, Lincoln's top hat. And I remember looking carefully at it, and everyone's like, look, there's blood on it. It wasn't blood. It was, his, uh, it was the oil from his hair because he greased his hair down. When we lived in Detroit, okay, Julie wants me to correct that I wasn't alive in 1776. I was alive in 1976. <laughs> Did everybody catch that but me? For those of you visiting, we'll be starting a new church next week in the parking lot. These people are way too critical. So, um, I, but I, I remember we're all walking through on that train, or I think it was like actually on a moving pad, and we're looking at it like, oh, look at all that. It's blood. And then they said, that's not blood. It's, it's his hair oil. And then I remember when we lived in Detroit that we went to a, is it the four, what was the his museum there? Henry Ford Museum. And, and that's phenomenal. If you ever make it up that way, you need to see it because there's a lot of really super cool historic stuff there. And uh, one of the things is the chair that Lincoln was shot in. And I remember as you went by, you looked and you're like, oh, I see blood. There's blood all over the back where his head would be. That must be, remember you guys, he was leaning forward and he was shot in the back of the head. So the blood's not, he went forward. The thing was, it was his hair oil. But, but we all sort of think, well, I'm here to tell you that there was never a man named Abraham Lincoln. They made a guy up and he, I mean, you've never met him. How do you know he exists? Abraham Lincoln has had no impact except on the penny that's worth two cents right now. He's had no impact on our culture and society except our historical recognition of him. It's mocking to say Abraham Lincoln never lived. It's a, it's a mockery. And, it's a, and that's how they mock God. God had an impact on the world because he created it. I remember when my kids got old enough, and just like I challenge you to think and ask questions, I would challenge them. And I remember a time when Zach was starting to go, Dad, I, I, both of my kids said it like this, Dad, I'm not doubting God. I'm not doubting God. I know God exists. But let's say somebody did. I have a friend, Dad. These, these were, they were young. And they would say, you know, how do I know? I've never seen God. And I remember I took Zach out. First of all, we read The Case for Christ. 
But then I took Zach out in the backyard and I took a bunch of knives from the kitchen drawer and Julie didn't know this because it's bad for the knives. And I threw them up in the air and I said, be a car. And guess what? When it landed, it was just a bunch of knives in the dirt. You know why? Because you can't make a knife turn into a car. How did this get here? A big boom. Okay, I'll do that with you. Where'd the gas come from? Well, I, I, I don't know that. I do. God. He spoke it into existence. And it is mockery to say that something comes out of nothing. It's a mockery. Nothing comes out of nothing. You can't, nothing you've ever seen, you've ever tasted, you've ever breathed, or you've ever smelled came out of nothing. Everything comes from something, except God himself, who created everything out of his voice. And that's what he's saying here. They are mocking because they deliberately, that's the word that's translated uh, from the Greek, deliberately ignore that everything was made by God through his voice. And not only that, but the same water he created with his voice, he judged the world with, and then we have a flood. Not only that, you keep going. Not only, not only, not only, you keep going through the story. God has shown himself, even being born of a virgin into history. God has been among us. His name is Emmanuel. We've seen the impact of God, much greater than Abraham Lincoln. There's more evidence that Jesus Christ rose from the dead than Abraham Lincoln ever lived. Go study it. The fact is, we mock because we choose... Let me explain it. Peter wasn't the only one who explained this. Paul did in Romans. He explained the mocker's attitude and why they mock. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. Okay, pause for a second, take a breath. How do, how, you know, I met an atheist. He really, really genuinely doesn't believe in God. This says there's no such thing as atheists. Why? Because it's obvious that somebody started this. It doesn't have to be Yahweh or Yeshua. It's somebody started this. This had to start somewhere. And he is saying the truth about God is being suppressed because he's made his existence obvious to them. Ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. Wow, he calls those invisible qualities. So even in non-action today, the fact is that his invisible qualities are still seen at night and day. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. Instead of worshiping, so here's what they do. Instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worship idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. I refer you back to Mount Sinai when Moses is up there too long and uh, they decide to take their gold earrings off and throw it in a fire and make a cow out of it. That's rejecting God. That's making a mockery of God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him or as God or even give him thanks. They began to think up foolish things. I backed up a little bit. Foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds become dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead become utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worship idols made to look like mere, mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So, as a result, God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. 
As a result, they did violent, degrading things with each other's bodies. Now, some of you right now are going, oh, that's where homosexuality comes from. Could you please just for a second listen to the text? Because it isn't really just about homosexuality. Listen to what he says. They do degrading things with each other's body. They trade the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. This is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them. That's God's judgment. We're going to be coming to Romans in the fall, and we will talk a lot more about this. We'll kind of walk through depravity. But he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things they should, that should never be done. Their lives. So here's the list of things that a mocker begins to do because he's rejected a God that has made himself clear to them. Their lives become full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, Insolent, proud, and boastful. Wow, does that sound like culture? All these things. Satan wants us to focus on same-sex marriage and attraction and relationships. That's not the only fruit of living for yourself and, and mocking God. The fruit of mocking God and not submitting to Him is sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip, backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning. And they disobey their parents. Now we really have to throw Disney out. <laughs> Truthfully, okay, and I, I don't mean you have to throw Disney out, but I'm simply saying for those who are upset about Disney's clear agenda now, I just want you to know that they've had an agenda for 30 years. Parents are dumb, kids are smart. Parents need to understand that their kids are just trying to figure it out. And if they give them plenty of room, they'll end up as reprobate as the writers of the stories. And by the way, those are the stories we grew up with. I'm not saying you shouldn't watch them. I'm saying that when you watch them, make sure you teach your kids that they're the children and you're the parents. You've got to wash it down with some Andy Griffith. Do you remember, and Andy Griffith isn't spiritual truth, but the truth is, do you remember the episode where that homeless guy comes in and befriends Andy's son, and they become buddies? I, I was, we watched it this week. And uh, the homeless guy goes, I just think your son should be able to make decisions for himself. And Andy looks at him and says, and you're wrong. You see, that little boy doesn't understand what's healthy and what's not healthy. And you're going you're gonna to show him shiny things that turn him on and make him excited and feel. And he's going to follow you. So you have to leave town, homeless guy. And i got a mess to clean up. Because the truth is, God gave our silly, ignorant, what's the word I'm looking for? Naive children, mom and dad, to, to keep them from destroying themselves. So no matter what these issues are, rebellion against parents is the result of not submitting to God, even in a five-year-old. That's a sign. It's a sign in a 14-year-old. It's a sign in a 20-year-old. This is the sign. They refuse to understand. They break palm promises. They're heartless. They have no mercy they know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them. 
So when we get into this in Romans, I, I just want to start by saying this text is not about homosexuality. While this is the text we like to teach, this text is about being a mocker of God, scoffing Him, rejecting His rightful place as Lord, and the manifestation of that in our lives. It explains how the world got to where the world is. Just as there's the fruit of the Spirit's control in our life, and we all know them from Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, there's also fruit of Satan's control of our lives or us controlling our own lives. The evidence of that was listed here. Greed, worship of creation, envy, murdering, quarreling, deception, backstabbing, insolent, proud, boastful, and sexual deviance of all kinds, including church adultery. It's almost like the church has forgotten today that heterosexual adultery, adulterous relationships are just as offensive to God as same-sex adulterous relationships. You see, ultimately, it's not about, it's not about who you're being with. And I, I just remembered we got kids in here, so I'm going down to rated PG, so, so stick with me. I, I thank you. Those parents who now want me to explain that to your children, don't call me. Call Jeff Bonin. <laughs> but the truth is that we need to understand that it is sin and rejecting God's authority in our life that leads us down to depravity no matter how it manifests itself. And church, the enemy of the church is not any of those single behaviors. It is what leads to those behaviors. We have a tendency in the church, and I think it's the problem of pastors, we have a tendency to tell you to stop doing these things. Well, the reason you're doing them is the problem, not what you're doing. Are you, are you following me? Bill Wilson of uh, the 12-step Alcohols Anonymous wrote in that book, and I've quoted this before. It's one of my favorite all-time quotes. What he said is, there is nobody more miserable than a dry drunk. In other words, we can get you through electric shock shock therapy, or we can sew your lips shut where you'll never taste alcohol again. But if we just keep you from alcohol... some information. (laughs) Sorry. I keep forgetting to mute her. She wants to be part of this message. If, if, uh, if, we don't, if, if you don't replace that self-medicating alcohol or drugs with something, with something that, that, that brings you hope, it's just exchanging one drug for another. And in Alcoholics Anonymous through the years, uh, that's where the higher power concept came from. You need a higher power. And while Bill Wilson was a follower of Jesus, some people choose to get into mechanics or different things, but they're pouring their life. And I would argue that too many Christians are so busy avoiding pornography that they're alcoholics. Or they're so busy not drinking that they're angry. I mean, I think many of the deacons I've met in my life out of Baptist churches are very angry little men who sneak alcohol behind the, behind the building. You know, we were taught growing up, no drinking, dancing, or smoking. But boy, there were a lot of cigarette butts in the deacons' meetings. I mean, it's just, it's just kind of how we do it. Your flesh will reign if God doesn't reign. Does that make sense? And so while we look at the world and we kind of go, what is going wrong with these people? And our, 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 our brain wants to fight their sin, the activity, it's not the activity that's the problem, it's what gives them the license to do that. They're not bowing to Jehovah. If we get the, if we get the world to stop having gay marriage, if we get the world to overturn abortion, if we get, I, I mean, fill it in. If murder stops tomorrow, but these people have not met God, they've only got a better life for the next 40 years. Our job, okay, pause, I'm getting ahead of myself. Peter refers to these as mocking gods because they 
mocking God because they are person, purposely ignoring God's standards and choosing their flesh and desires over what they know offends Him. That's why it's mockery. I believe, this is Mark Wilkie, it's not the Bible, it's Mark Wilkie. I believe that the national religion of the United States of America is self-worship, not Yahweh. Why do I believe that? Because it's written into our founding documents that this country's core principle is everybody's right to, self, to, to seek happiness however they see fit. There's a problem with that. If God wrote that document... We're here to seek his kingdom first, and that means self-aside. You see, when we become a follower of Jesus, we go into this upside-down kingdom value system that says that my first and foremost priority is not to seek my own happiness, but actually to seek and save he to seek, the one who saved me, and his, his desires for this culture. And that means I go beyond prejudices and my own feelings and my own frustrations to minister to people that I may find offensive because that's exactly what God did to me. I'm not saying, well, we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks. How do we succeed America as people who first want to seek God's kingdom? But the truth is, as a child of God, I literally give up my own inalienable right to pursue my own happiness. Why? Because Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, means ruler, control, and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. We have a modern, even Christian, my fear is that this has crept into this church, this self-worship, that, that while we have crosses all over the place, they're little, but the big cross is me. What do I want? And even the preaching today is about how you improve your life. Yes, Jesus can save your soul, but you can improve your life. So make good decisions. And we go back to Scripture and we redefine them as if David defeated a Goliath with, with the giant with a rock. To be clear, first and foremost, the rock didn't kill Goliath, the sword did. I want to remind you, the rock knocked him out, the sword cut his head off. So I just want to say, those of you who think that the rock is the big part of the story, go back and read the story. Your ignorance is embarrassing. He cuts his head off with his own sword and carries him around on a spear for seven days. Ooh, I thought David played the harp when he wasn't carrying dead men's head around. And by the way, David is very clear on who kills Goliath. You come at me with the sword and the spear, but I come at you in the name of the living God who you have defied today. It was God that killed Goliath. And even in Christendom today, we have people telling us that it was David with his five stones. So you need to find five stones in your life to overcome your giants. I got good news and bad news for you. If you take a stone to defeat the giants in your life, it may only knock them cold, but I assure you, they'll get back up. But God has provided a sword, so go to God. That's the story of David and Goliath. And I believe that what we've done in the church, this is just my observation, is we have replaced Jesus Christ, Lord of all for all time, with Mark Wilkie, as I see it, feel it, and desire it. That's why we're so angry politically because we really think it's upon us to save our country, to save our world, to, and God's going, no, nope, I, it's not your plan. Well, what do you want me to do? You, you seem quiet. You want me just to sit here? You have asked me. I didn't ask you that. Well, what did you ask me to do? I'll tell you in two weeks. Come back. It's a cliffhanger. 
It's really clear in Scripture. And it's going to set you free or make you mad. You get to choose. So back to this text. Peter refers to these people as God mockers because they perfect, purposely ignore God's standard and choose their flesh and desires over what they know to offend them. Paul warned that this would creep its way into the church from, and I shared this with you last week, but I want to look at it again. For a time is coming when people, Christians, religious people, Timothy, that you'll be preaching to, will no longer listen to sound and wisdom teaching. They will follow their own what? Their own desires and look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. That's mocking. That's exactly what the unsaved do. Only these people claim to be saved. Back to 2 Peter chapter 3. I want to take us through 1 through 7. We're getting close here. This is my second letter to you, dear friends. And in both of them, I have tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. I want you to remember what the holy prophets said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. Most importantly... I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. This is just a summary of what Paul said in Romans chapter 1. So he's warning them, I'm leaving. Please look out for these people. Make sure you don't go into them. They're going to say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything's pretty much remained the same since the world was first created. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens by the word of his command and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by that same world, a word, so the same voice that created everything, the same voice that brought the flood out of their zones and flooded the earth, that same voice, that same word, the present heavens and earth will be stored up for fire. They will be kept for the day of judgment when the ungodly people will be destroyed. The teaching that he wanted them and us to remember in his absence is that at the time of the Lord's return draws close. The scoffer will mock God with their lives, but in the end, they will be judged by the one that they mock, by his voice. So we say, get on with it, God. Come on. What are you waiting for? Verse 8. But you followers of Jesus must not forget this one thing. Dear friends, my dear brothers, my, my family, I love you so much. Don't forget this. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about His promise, as some people think. No, He's being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. Wow. A few years ago, when gay marriage became the law of the land, when Roe versus Way was first enacted, pastors all over this country said, fire will rain from heaven now. God's judgment is now upon the earth, and it didn't happen. Not the way they were saying. And this explains why. This explains why. Not because he won't judge the scoffer or the mocker, but rather because he's being patient. Why? Because he doesn't want anybody, including the mocker scoffer, to be destroyed. And he wants everyone, including the mocker scoffer, to repent. It would seem that God never looks at the scoffer like we do and says, you're going to get yours. You just wait. 
He's not saying that because God doesn't have to make us wait. But he's waiting, according to Peter, because he wants to even save the person you think is most reprobate. It's almost as if he's begging them to come and accept his offer to forgive their sin. I want you to track my thinking with me for a second. And this passage is familiar, Matthew chapter 25. This is a very familiar story. And it's about one day when we stand before God at the judgment seat. And it says, the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you at the creation of the world. So for the saved ones in front of him, he's going to say, come on in, welcome, welcome. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, away with you, you cursed ones, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his demons. You're familiar with that text, right? The story of the sheep and the goats? I remember growing up in a church, and I can't tell you which one did it. I think they all did it. But I remember one guy in particular who actually said, and I remember it because it shocked me as a good little Baptist boy, fundamental, independent, angry. And he said, if you don't know Jesus when the judgment seat comes, he's going to grab you by the neck and say, go to hell. And you know what? A lot of the church kind of gets that. You deserve it. Those reprobate late night hosts, they're going to be thrown into the lake of fire. They're going to get theirs. Those Disney animators, they're going to get theirs. But what if that's not the attitude of Jesus? Just a thought. What if he's not angry? What if what he said here, away with you, you're cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons, what if the attitude, and we hear it the way it's preached, what if his attitude is, I did everything I could. You have to go. You are condemned. You're judged. And you're going to go to a place that I didn't even create for you. I created it for the demons and the devil and his angels. What if God isn't angry? He's just brokenhearted. It seems to me that that matches the patience of God. If God is mad, he can rain fire down on us just like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and yes, I'm sure he's offended, but I don't think the attitude is angry. The judgment of the lost and the scoffer is so tragic because, men and women, enough blood has been already shed, enough grace has already been offered for every man, woman, and child ever born, ever conceived to be saved. Every, everybody's sin has been paid for. It's been purchased. And that's the problem. If you don't understand this, the problem isn't heaven and hell. It's why you go there. And those whose sin has been paid for, because someone has to pay for your sin, those whose sin has been paid for, they get to enter the presence of God. Those whose sin has not been paid for, those who say, I don't want your offer to pay for my sin, they get to pay for it on their own. That's what they're saying anyway. It's what they want. So they get what they want. God isn't going, yeah. God is going, are you kidding me? I can't believe that I have to cast you into hell. I didn't even create it for you. It was created for the devil and his angels. Go. What if he's not mad? What if he's heartbroken? It's so tragic because the blood was shed. 
But there will be a point, it tells us, that his patience, and the reason he hasn't done it and he doesn't do it when we get frustrated or angry or offended is because he wants all to come to repentance. But there will be a day in which his patience ends, 2 Peter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to, to deserve judgment. My goodness, if you are watching today, if you are not a child of God, I am not asking you to become a member of Carpenter's Way Baptist Church. I'm not asking you to ever come here again. You don't have to ever listen to me again. I'm asking you not to be a fool. Your sin has been paid for. Seriously. And you know that you've sinned. There's not one person who ever lived who thought, I am a perfect person. That person is a liar and they know they're lying. Your sin has been paid for. Don't pay for it again. But you will if you reject Him. How can a loving God send people to hell? A loving God doesn't. A loving God sent His Son, came down here, endured life for 33 years, was put on a cross so that nobody had to pay for their own sin. Don't pay for your sin. Okay, I won't. You To do that, though, somebody else has to, and that's Jesus. That's what he did on the cross. What happened on the cross was not man's inhumanity to deity. What happened on the cross is exactly as planned. Somebody, Father, the Trinity got together at the beginning of time and said, we've got to pay for the sin that they're going to commit. Who's going to do that? Jesus raises his hand and says, okay. I'll pay for their sin. I'll take it all on my shoulders. I will be the sacrifice. They don't have to pay for their own sin. Brother and sister, family of God, that's exactly why you're not going to hell. You're not going to hell because you figured it out. You're not not going to hell because you're good. You're not not going to hell because, I don't know if I'm saying too many knots, but you're, you're not avoiding condemnation because of you. You are avoiding condemnation, not because your sin has been forgotten, but because your sin has been paid for. Never in Scripture does it say you're innocent. Never. It says that your sin was put on Jesus. So you are declared forgiven. <laughs> you want to celebrate Independence Day? This country's still a mess. Heaven is not. Your independence from the paying for your own sin is complete. But I still struggle with sin. If you confess your sin, he's faithful, just, forgive us our sins, and cleanse us from all past present, and future unrighteousness. So I can live any way I want. If you're living out the fruit of not having him as Lord of your life, you should question your salvation. I thought you believed in eternal security. I absolutely do. But I think there's a lot of people who go to church that aren't really saved. How do you know? Fruit of their life. The fruit of the Spirit's presence is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. The fruit of the flesh is anger, Hatred, gossip, backstabbing, disobedient to parents, adultery. We go right up the line. Now look at your life and ask whose you are. And I'm not trying to scare you into heaven today. I actually find this incredibly encouraging. He goes on to say to the child of God, since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives we should live. Looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. Come on, God. I'm ready. But I, I will wait because I trust your patience. Your Lord, I'm not. 
On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, as he promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. And remember, remember, I want to tell you one more time before I die, the Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. And aren't you glad? Because six months before you were born, or six months before you were saved, or six weeks or six hours, some pastor mounted a pulpit in this country to talk about how reprobate our country is, and it's going to hell in a handbasket, and God's going to rain fire from heaven. Aren't you glad he didn't? Because you would be destined for hell. You see, while you and I, who have become intrinsically selfish, look at Hollywood and, and Washington, D.C., and we just scream at our televisions, and we buy plastic bricks that don't break it so that we can feel better sitting on the couch, if any of you, some of you laughed, some of you know what I'm talking about. You can actually buy that, a brick. You can throw it at your TV and it won't hurt your TV. I think that's funny. But if while you watch your Fox News or your CNN and you're mad at everybody around you, I just want to remind you that there was somebody mad at God when he didn't come back before you were saved. Thank God for patience. And those of you who are praying for your children to be saved, your transgender, your gay kid, your rebellious kid, Thank God for patience. Thank God for patience. Next time you want to rain fire down on Washington, D.C., ask yourself if your whole crew is ready. That'll change your heart, won't it? See, that's what I'm talking about, being selfish. We've got to put ourselves in the middle. And as long as my crew is ready, I'm ready. Well, what about the neighbor's crew? Or the people across the street? You see, that's what Peter's saying. I know you're struggling. I know you're being abused. I know some of you are being fed to lions in the Colosseum, and Nero's a liar, and he's evil. And I just want to remind you that God is not asleep. And I know they're saying, where's your God? You know, Nebuchadnezzar said that to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Who, what God can save you from my hand? And remember their response? Even if our God chooses not to, we will never bow. And by the way, they were thrown into the fiery furnace. We like to think they got away with it. I don't think so. They still paid the price. It just wasn't time for them to die. Same with Daniel in the lion's den. The truth is that it's hard. We now live and want justice of God. We want peace and racial equality. We want all that stuff. We want morality. That's not going to happen until Lord, the Lord fixes this. And the reason he hasn't fixed it already is because he's being patient so that, so that uh, the world might be saved. I want to remind you of John 3, 16 and 17. And I'm, I'm done real quick. For God, referring to the Father, so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, second member of the Trinity. So the Father gave his Son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I think we should teach our kids verse 17 along with verse 16. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It goes on to say that the world was already condemned. Now you know why Jesus didn't march in anti-sin rallies of his day. Why he didn't preach against Gentiles, but he ministered to them. Now you know why Jesus didn't tell off the demon-possessed Mary Magdalene or the turncoat tax collector Matthew 
And the woman at the well had been married five times and was now living in sin with some dude she wasn't even married to. Now you know why he didn't tell you all. Because he came not to condemn you, you were already condemned. He came to save you from condemnation. So be like Jesus. What do I do? I hate what the world is doing. Be like Jesus. He hated what the world was doing. In fact, 1 John 2.6 says this. I know some of you can't read really well, so I'll give you 30 seconds to read it for yourself. I'm not making this up. It's what it says. You see, it's really hard to watch the world be hateful and evil and dark and frustrated and yelling at each other. So make sure you don't do that too. Jesus actually drew. He was mocked for being a friend of sinners. He was a lousy Baptist. He hung out with people that prostituted themselves and drank. My goodness, he put in his history a Moabitess woman that were all supposed to be killed, and he put a prostitute as his great, 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 like 16 grandmothers. Rahab. That old Rahab the whore. Careful, that was Jesus' grandmother. Why would he pick a woman? Was there nobody else? There was plenty of other people. But he likes the broken, and he's patient with us. Oh, man, family. As I, as, as I finish, I want to share with you a question the Lord's been asking me all week. Are you willing to be mistreated, Mark, scoffed at, maligned, uncomfortable for a few dozen years so that others might be saved? To which I said, no. I'm just kidding. How do you answer that? Others lived uncomfortable when you grew up in hippie Southern California, boy. The whole hippie movement was going on when I was there, you know. I just hate that era. I think the era I grew up in the 70s and 80s had the best music ever, you know. We had Foreigner and Sticks. I know some of you just went, he isn't a Baptist. I warned you. We had great music. The era before mine, the laughing era, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> Too many flowers. And, it's, and you stunk. You needed to shower more. You live on the beach. That's not a great thing. To me, it's like, come on. But to God, it's like, shh. I got this. I got this. Lord Jesus, make us remake us with your heart. And Lord, as we look at the globe, the world around us, our country, and we don't have Peter to go, what is God doing? We can't just grab him by the throat and Paul and say, what is going on? Would you please tell God as if they have a special line to you? And they're not here, but we have, we have the things they want us to know. And what they want, what Peter wanted us to know this morning is that while the world around us is mocking and scoffing you, it's not, that, it's not that you're stuck into a calendar you set. Instead, what's holding off your judgment is your patience and your desire to save people. And so, Father, I pray this morning on behalf of our church, you take as much time as you need. And in the meantime, change our hearts. We love you. We trust you. Help us with our lack of trust. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
If you are interested, if, if the Lord's speaking to you and you need a moment, you don't have to leave those lights on. Over here, we set up communion after every service now so that if you just need a moment with the Lord, if the Lord's speaking to you, you can go over there and you can just take communion and talk to the Lord by yourself and we won't interrupt you. You all know that I stay up here after the service. I'm glad to pray with you. We've got others around that can pray with you. But go have a fun 4th of July. Go party with your family. Enjoy it. Thank God for independence, but thank God for true freedom through Jesus Christ. Have a wonderful Sunday, you guys.